Hey everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. I really think that Oregonians need somebody who takes that leadership role of bringing people together around the big issues rather than having the big issues be things that divide them. I think that the governor has a responsibility to actually go and listen to people in their communities, like in their place in an accessible and transparent manner. And so I feel like there's these connections that we really should be making that are um, based upon the inherent differences in our communities. All right, everybody, on today's episode, we have our first Democratic candidate for Oregon governor, Casey Kula. Casey is a Yamhill County commissioner. Yamhill County is a mostly rural county in Northwest Oregon. It includes McMinnville and Newburgh. It's also the home county of New York Times columnist Nick Kristoff and potential Democratic candidate for governor as well. And Casey's got a really interesting backstory. He's only served on the commission for two years. And uh, his background, he has training as a biochemist and a forest ecologist. He was a marijuana grower for a while. And so he's got a, a, a unique perspective to bring to the table. We asked him a lot in this episode. We covered a lot of ground. I'll give you a, a brief overview of things to look for. The obvious question, why are you running for governor for someone who relatively new to elected office and doesn't serve in the state legislature, as he's noted traditionally, most governors started their their time in politics in the state legislature. An interesting conversation in this episode is about the Yamhill County Trail, which sounds like a very like wonky local government, who cares sort of issue. But the answer to the question, who cares, is actually a lot of people in Yamhill County. It's been a, a very divisive topic locally. And so we talk about this trail and there's an article written about it that basically says, you know, what's happening in Yamhill County with regards to this trail as a microcosm of our larger political and social context. So that's an interesting conversation. His perspective is really interesting. That's where we first mentioned Nick Kristoff in conversation, because uh, some folks have sort of indicated that either Nick should should not run and support Casey or Casey should not run and support Nick. So we talk a little bit about that. We spend some time on the urban rural divide. Alex isn't able to join for the intro, but he's in the episode. And one of the things he wanted me to note in the intro is that Casey does reject the label of rural Democrat. He says he doesn't like to use labels. Um, And in Titus's mind, that is one of his advantages is that he's a rural Democrat. So Titus believes he should embrace the label. Um, It'll be interesting to see how it plays out. I think we just don't know the field. We don't know the issues that are going to be most um, pertinent when the election draws near. So who knows? Um, but, But more to come on that front for sure. Uh, we also talk about the timber industry and, uh, you know, what Democrats and what Oregon government more broadly can offer to timber dependent economies that haven't really replaced the timber industry when it vacated over the last 20 or 30 years, uh, or I guess 30 to 40 years, probably. Uh, we have a conversation about viability and then racial justice as well, where he um said something that was interesting to me that I didn't know about in terms of groups. He calls them racial equity groups and queer communities who are unhappy with the governor and the leadership in the legislature addressing all their needs. So look for that comment near the end, but we'll keep it pretty short today. I hope you all enjoy this episode. One other plug before you go, if you haven't heard yet, 
the Oregon Bridge has joined forces with the Oregon Way, and we're creating something new and something special. The best way you can support the work that we're doing on this podcast and the work that we're doing on the Oregon Way is by becoming a paid subscriber to the Oregon Way. So it's theoregonway.substack.com. Very easy to find. Put in your email address. You can choose one of the tiers of subscription that you'd like, and that'd be a big help for us. It will help us do some more cool stuff as we move into the future. But with that, let's dive into the episode. Thanks again to our producer, Buddy Terry, for making this all possible. And we hope you enjoy the episode. All right, everybody, welcome to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. And today we are excited to be joined by Yamhill County Commissioner, Casey Kula. Casey, thanks for joining the podcast. Awesome to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So let's start with the obvious question here. How does, at the time, a cannabis farmer and scientist end up running for their county commission against an incumbent? What's the story of how you got pulled into politics? I mean, there's so many versions, right? The short one is that I got really mad. Well, my wife got really mad about a very poor land use decision that she was at. And I was at home on the farm and she was with the kids and she texted me and she was like, oh my God, can you believe they did this? And I was like, oh, I'm running. Um, <laughs> but the longer version is, you know, we, uh, my wife and I, I'm not any longer, no longer doing this, but my wife and I uh, were the leaders in opposing um, a gravel quarry that was set up just upstream from our farm on our Grand Island. So it's a river island in the Willamette. And um, if you don't know land use, land use is like the best way to do community organizing and engage in. It's like the best way to get into the Oregon process of politics. And so we fought that, got people together around it, disparate views. Let me tell you, if we're talking about disparate views, this we were the bridge getting all these folks together. And so out of that, when we lost repeatedly, my cynicism grew. It felt like the system was rigged against people who were opposing land use decisions. Mm. And what I gradually learned, the nuance of that is that of course, land use and planning and development is all about somebody bringing an application and looking at the laws and saying, how do I fit this into the laws? You know, the, um, the laws plus the evidence is what you get your decision out of. So it really is in a way it is rigged because the goal is to get to yes in the land use system from the planning side. And so I, uh, I developed a cynicism about it. And then one day I was like, you know, instead of cynicism, I can actually be engaged in that process. I can actually make these decisions and bringing that, like, especially the science background, I wanted to have our decision makers fully engaged in our decisions, having read everything, considered both sides, considered the rules and the laws and figured out where they had discretion too. Because like the discretion, the balance of discretion and rules-based order is the really fascinating thing to me because there's tension in there. Probably like Alex and Ben here, there's some tension and you don't know like how to fit it, but you got to accept that it's just there. Little healthy tension for sure. Yeah. No, little, little healthy tension is, is always good for sure. Uh, well, so Casey, so you've been a commissioner for two years. And of course, kind of, as you just said, you don't really have extensive experience in state level government, policy, politics, uh, all that fun stuff. And you're currently the front runner right now <laughs> of the democratic field this is true so, uh is, you know, so our neighbor my neighbor nick christoph isn't the friend runner that's good to know not nick christoph hasn't jumped in yet so right now if the primary were held today casey kula would win with unanimous support of democrats in oregon it'd be, it'd be 100 to zero <laughs> so exciting so exciting but alex i think you were leading somewhere yeah, so, so what made you pull the decision to, to want to run for governor, right? I mean, some of the people that are looking 
in the race right now. Obviously, you have Speaker Kotek, you have commissioners from Portland, maybe the mayor of Portland, which I know we've talked about on this show a couple of times, but you know, a New York Times columnist who's quite kind of a, a famous global celebrity. What made you, County Commissioner of Yamhill, want to run for governor? Totally. So the, I mean, the the like real high level stuff is that I feel like on our state, the one thing we really need is leadership that brings us together, kind of acting as that bridge that we've got going on here where like, I kind of feel like I'm hanging out between Ben and Alex. Like, I really think that Oregonians need to have somebody who takes that leadership role of bringing people together around the big issues rather than having the big issues be things that divide them. And that's what I do, you know, from uh, we started our farm 15 years ago, full-time, year-round vegetable farm, and the two driving principles were building community and growing abundantly. And that's like, I feel like that in a nutshell is what we need in the, the leadership in state government in Oregon. And so the legislature, for example, is really different than the state executive leadership position. Legislators tend to know do what they know best, right, which is to legislate. So when I come to a legislator, and so we've been doing uh, land use policy and advocacy and cannabis policy and advocacy kind of all along in there. And we when we would go to a legislator, we would say, hey, this is a problem. And they'd say, hmm, which statute can I fix? Or what, what language can I add to a statute? So that's their like the universe of solutions for me, especially as a county commissioner and as a farmer, the universe of solutions is the universe. So we can make things happen at the smallest scale, um, you know, like timber unity in rural communities and the mutual aid, like the blocks in inner Portland can both be solutions at one scale, building up to county and city and beyond the state and federal level. So being a county commissioner, we're working with everybody all the time because we have to. So bringing that into the state level leadership is what I think I bring. And I'm not scared. Yeah, no, and that's interesting. And I, I want to ask you uh, a similar question, actually, that we asked to Jamie McLeod Skinner. If you listen to our podcast, Jamie uh, obviously ran for Congress against Greg Walden. Uh, you know, she's she's a rural Democrat. She's also a progressive. Uh, I imagine you kind of frame yourself in in the same light. Uh, what well, has wait, been? Wait, wait, wait. He's saying no. I was shaking his head. Okay, yeah. no. I want to hear more about the discrepancy. Yeah, no, but Alex has. Uh, he needed to finish his question. <laughs> Should I like go into it and then he finishes his question? Yeah. I'll just say, yeah. Alex, that, yeah, yeah. So um, I don't see myself as a rural Democrat. And honestly, my values are uh, very, very progressive. I mean, you can go to my website and look at like how I list and like how I make decisions. But um, I don't see myself as a rural Democrat or an urban Democrat or a, um, a farmer Democrat or a pot farmer Democrat. Um, I see myself as part of this group of people who actually think that government has a role to play in making people's lives better and then evening out the playing field and doing things that individuals on their own can't do well. And I will say that in Oregon, we've seen time and again that state agencies sometimes really drop the ball. So I just want to note, like acknowledge that the, the state agencies have a long ways to go in actually doing things well. And so that's why I say that I'm not a, a rural Democrat. And that's okay. just well, like- we'll, a, we'll leave it to Jamie then and Senator Johnson there. <laughs> yeah, Benji actually, Johnson. actually, maybe Senator Gelser also. She was like, ah, I'm kind of in the middle. I was like, all right, sure. fair enough, fair enough. That's true. And, and really for me, like I don't, um, I don't self-identify with really anything. I mean, I love being like, yo, I'm the pot farmer, county commissioner, but that's really almost entirely in jest um, is um, 
I've spent my life floating between circles. And I think the best, maybe the best way to describe it is that when I was in college, I was at Western Washington University um, in Bellingham and I have, a bio, I have a biochemistry degree as my initial. Um, and so I was working in the biochemistry labs. Um, I was, um, you know, walking, walking the uh, red square, they call it. But at the same time, I was also working part-time uh, for the plumbing shop at the university. Hmm. Union plumbing shop, I was a plumber's assistant. And so there were days when I would be walking across uh, Red Square, you know, like carrying my backpack and just being a student. And then literally later that day, I was working on the steam fittings underneath Red Square. Hmm. Wow. And at that, so I feel like that's really exemplified my life is that I've had the opportunity um, of living in totally different worlds at the same time. So, so that was totally an aside for you, Alex. No, I, I, I think that's actually a good lead into our question, which is we have to, uh, we have to talk about the trail. Um, this, is, this is a big issue in Yamhill County. My, my uncle actually lives in Yamhill County. My family's from out there. And um, I thought this was like super bizarre um, when I first read about it. Um, in, there's a wonderful article in the, I believe it's called the High Country News. It's by Leah Sautile. The article is titled, how a trail in rural Oregon became a target of far-right extremism. And so Casey, I'm gonna give a little uh, a summary of my understanding based on that article. And then we've got some questions to help us like understand what are the implications of this um, for a statewide audience, which is who we're talking to. So on the Yamhill County Commission, you've got you, a Democrat, and then you've got Mary Starrett, who is, um, I will editorialize and say very conservative. She was a Constitution Party nominee for governor in Oregon back in the day. I believe her husband is very involved in um, the Oregon Firearms Federation, which is a, you know, obviously a Second Amendment group that I think is often considered further to the right than the NRA in Oregon. Uh, and then her you've brother. got- Sorry. Say it again. It's her brother. Oh, it's her brother, her brother. I just want to get it for- No, that's helpful. Go and then you've got Lindsey Bershauer, who is uh, a Republican as well, and you know, sort of like a campaign operative. I believe she's got experience running campaigns and helping Republicans win elections. Um, this was a shift in the county uh, uh, in the county governance system. Like it used to be, sort of like maybe people who were more conservative, but the issues were more apolitical. Like it wasn't a super partisan environment. And so basically previous county commissions and county and non-elected non county leadership had been moving forward with this trail idea, which seems like a great idea. It's like uh, mm -hmm. basically a trail through Yamhill County that would bring people, you know, pedestrians, bicyclists, et cetera, like the scenic trail. Um, but it came, it became a wedge issue. It became like a partisan wedge issue where these conservative county commissioners sort of in partnership with some farmers who owned land, whose land would be affected in their view by the trail, who like turned this into super partisan. And so the basic fallout from this article is like, they voted, it was two to one, you were in the minority, and they voted to stop moving forward with this trail, which has significant financial implications for the county because you've got grants and you've unlocked some funding to construct this, and then now it's been stopped. So the premise of this article is like that story is indicative of larger political patterns across the state. So before we get into our questions, did I leave anything important out of that summary or did I capture it about correctly? I think you did it. Yeah. So yeah, no, compl I mean, there's so much nuance in everything, but go ahead. Okay. No, no. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And maybe that will come out here because so uh, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit because I was reading your Twitter. And uh, one of the things, so Nick Kristoff, um, New York Times columnist, 
who is floating this idea of potentially running for governor, someone tagged you, I think it was Rob Harris tagged you and said, you know, um, uh, uh, Nick Kristoff should support Casey Kula in his campaign. They're both Yamhill County Democrats um, and they sort of have this similar appeal. And your argument was essentially like, vision and leadership are important. Um, I'm actually doing it right now. So tell me, so, but my initial response was like, but Casey got railroaded on this trail. Like, and I'm on your side on it. <laughs> right, right. Like, but you like the partisan environment seem, it seems to sort of like overcome your approach, which is like super collaborative, bring people together for discussions. It seems like the other side doesn't want to have that approach and they just want to do what they want to do. So how do you see it? Do you see it differently than I do? Such a great question, Ben. Um, so, uh, yes. So, um, because elected officials have to have like hokey sayings, but mine are usually a little bit longer. How I'll have a hokey saying is that in Oregon, we can do anything with some time, some money, and some willing participants, but the last one is the hardest to find, right? I love that. It's going to be a very it. long campaign bumper sticker. <laughs> yeah. I know. And we have ones that are trees are the answer too. So yeah. that's good. That's good. Um, but you're right that it's um, the approach that requires willing participants um, requires that willing participants show up at the table. And so this is, um, if you've read any of my campaign policy um, kind of position statements, one of them is around um, a relook at an update to the 50 year old land use system that we have. And one of the things in there, like um, I, I would say, you know, and based upon talking to Senator or Governor Kulingowski about this, I would say that I, I, I'm wagering that I'm the most experienced in land use of anybody who's likely to run for governor on both sides. Um, and like, so I spoke to a thousand friends of Oregon uh, the other day to their board because I'm in their farmer advisory council and I have, I regularly on the other side of things from them. And I went through some of the, the ways to look at the world and how we can make land use really relevant to the major challenges we have. And I would say that one of the big challenges is, um, specifically with rails to trails projects is that in Oregon land use, if you're on exclusive farm use zoning, you can't put recreational facilities there except through the conditional use permit process. And as probably, hopefully both of you know, um, just like the court system, land use is, um, once it gets to the level of public hearings before decision-making bodies, it's inherently an adversarial relationship. Hmm. So that means that I can't, outside of a public hearing, I can't talk to Ben Van Dyke. So Ben Van Dyke, for example, is a farmer who is my age, um, similar age children. You know, we both, we have different color tractors, but we can get over that. I'll just say <laughs> that mine are blue and his are green. Um, but there's no ability inside of the land use system to really dig in and figure out what things do we agree on and what things do we like have that are no-goes. And so what I do all the time is I build relationships with the goal of someday us needing to get along. So I build trust all the time. The problem with the land use system is that it, is take, it takes um, those relationship building and it doesn't allow them. It doesn't allow uh, for a compromise in the, in the moment. Um, if we had gone, if we had, for example, set up um, a master plan advisory committee um, or an advisory committee in some capacity and had development by right for a recreational facility on exclusive farming zone land, we could have worked through all of these problems all the way along, but inherently we had an adversarial system. 
So, so that's like the shortest possible version I can see for how this is different. But it also, it also set itself up as you were right, a fully a wedge issue. Like the, the physical, if you like put a wedge in and you're gonna split a piece of wood and you tap that wedge in and then you're like, here we go. And money pounded that wedge in. So I think one of the challenges in our land use system is that it is just like the political system and campaign system, it flows on money. Mm-hmm. So one thing I'd like to see is a conversation about whether we can actually have transparency in the financial dealings that are associated with land use. And I think that would be so fascinating because right now we don't know at the county level who's paying the bills of the opposition. Fascinating. Um, and I like how you're using land use as a, as a case study for the political system. So, and I also like the idea of willing participants and that being a critical part of this. Sure. My question is like my follow-up question to that, and I know Titus has a has an urban rural divide question, which is all kind of tied into this, but yeah, I think you could argue, probably Democrats would argue that we're seeing an increase in unwilling participants in our politics. And I think the walkouts is the best example. Like people basically being like, no, I'm not going to negotiate on your terms. Um, if you're doing something that is moving in the direction I don't like or I think is bad for my constituents, the lever I have is to leave and to not participate. Right. So what's your, what's your theory of action or what's your case for how to uh, cultivate more willing participants or to create willing participants from people who feel threatened or um, maybe um, uninclined uh, to, to kind of sit at the table with you? Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, so uh, I think that, um, and hold your ears now, Alex. Um, I, I think that- My ears um, are being held. <laughs> President, yeah, thank you. He just unmuted himself. Or muted himself. <laughs> uh, I think that President Biden had a really um, um, an astute observation that the people of the United States um, are the ultimately our decision makers, even if in the temporary inter- intermediate, we've got folks that they've elected. Um, and so, you know, he was like, I'm going to go to people in the community because the things that I'm proposing are popular with them. Um, I think likewise, it's, it behooves governors and executives to remember that there are people in every, every one of these communities, that it's not just 60 people and 30 people that the governor needs, needs to get on their side. Um, I think that the governor has a responsibility um, and a call to actually go and listen to people in their communities, like in their place in an accessible and transparent manner. Because that's the only way, that is the, I would say that's the only way to actually hear what's happening and to hear the fears of people in their communities and to hear their hopes. So like I went to Prineville um, recently and I sat down with, it was like a mixed group and I say mixed because it was intended to be um, Crook County Democrats, uh, but some uh, some hard, uh, hardcore Republicans joined us, and it was such a delight to um, to be pitching to Democrats specifically, but to have that like, hey, remember, there's this person here who who needs to be heard, who has a right to be heard in our democratic process. So I'm not just talking to them. I'm also listening to everybody here. Um, so I think one is that the governor in order to further priorities, needs to actually hear what the concerns are in in communities, whether they're rural or they're urban. And I will say that in my travels, I, I hear a surprising number of the same things in rural and urban settings. So sorry, we're getting to your question, Alex, a little bit. Um, 
But beyond that, it really is about building relationships with people because, because you don't think you have the same things in common. Uh, I say that a good example of that is that I went to, um, uh, I went up to Portland, uh, I don't know, two, uh, two years ago, and I was like, hey, um, Andrew Hone, who's the, uh, I think he's the CEO of Portland Business Alliance. I asked him, I was like, you seem to work really well with city government, and I'm having a hard time at, uh, like finding a way to build relationships with our local chambers. And so he kind of laid out, he's like, here's what we do. We maintain constant communication. You know, we're seeing that now <laughs> that they do. But, um, we, you know, we push back when we have the chance, but we also recognize that we have the same priorities on things. And so I went to our local chambers and I was like, you know, I'm going to be your friend because you don't like me because I'm a Democrat. And you're like, I'm going to support the Republicans on everything. And it was like, that doesn't, that's not how it works, is that we work together to make our community better. So that's like the airy fairy version of, um, I guess the um, that the governor, in my view, um, is more than a cheerleader and is more than just a policy setter and a priority setter, but they're also the comforter and they're also the listener for the state. They're also the person who is like, "Damn, we can do this thing. How are we going to do it? Maybe your the thing in your community looks different than the thing in our community." Yeah, so so Casey, and even just to zone out a little bit before we yeah. get more back into the details, uh, one thing that we talk about a lot on this podcast is the urban-rural divide. Uh, and usually, actually, I do all the work and have to define it. So I'm going <laughs> to shoot this question to you, which is what I'm going to do going forward with our guests, is uh, before we even talk about the policies or sort of the dynamics, uh, wh what does the urban-rural divide look like in your mind? Uh, so, Alex, um, actually, if you uh, you've read, have you read the High Country News article? Yes. Okay. So I I talk about it a little bit there, uh, right? But to me, um, the urban and rural divide is really around the fact that um, we all often have the same problems in our communities, like homelessness in Lake County and homelessness in Inner Portland. They're both issues, um, but the the solutions to them look different. And that I think is one of the crux of the problem that we might see at the legislature is when the legislature tries to do something, it's often across the state, the same thing. When, when typically, um, I, and I say typically, because everything is, has its nuance, typically the solutions should look different in each community, just based upon the values, if nothing else. But the like the cheeky version is that the difference between urban areas and rural areas is that in rural areas we live further apart, um, and I, and it, it that's like it's like overly simplistic to the the nth degree, um, but you know like on um, on the island that we live on right now like I can't actually see any of our neighbors' homes and I'm like sitting on like a little a little spot here, but um you know we have like. Uh, three percenters um, uh, members down the road, but we also wow. have the former uh, commissioner for natural resources for Alaska is the next house down. And then the next one is a fourth generation cherry grower on the island who now rents out some of his barns as wedding venues. Wow. And um, mm. so I feel like we're, we're spread out and there may be some antisocial tendencies among rural folks compared <laughs> to urban folks. Like we live further apart for a reason, um, but it's also, there are some, some true physical differences in that out here in the country, we, 
we often produce things, whether we're exporting um, raw materials or whether we're, you know, making wine and beer um, or cheese or producing grass seed, we're like sending things out into the world. And then conversely, urban areas are sending taxes our way. And so I feel like there's these connections that we really should be making that are um, based upon the inherent differences in our communities. That's and actually, so, that's a very interesting point. Uh, which would be way too nerdy if I dived into the intellectual side. But Michael <laughs> Lind actually had a great piece on that, that uh, rural communities export the important things like food, et cetera, and that some of those tax revenues do come back basically to support those communities. But I won't dive uh, too much into that because it'll get it'll get really nerdy really quickly. But, I love it though. Yeah, thank you. But I did, so I did want to flag one thing that you said uh, a little bit earlier in your answer. And as part of that is, is the cultural issue. Uh, because I think that the the divide is yes, it's economic in some sense, and I mean some rural areas, especially in this part of the state, have just been absolutely decimated, especially when it comes to some of the timber communities. Uh, but I think part of it is cultural too, right? In the sense of that, yeah. Uh, and I I will clarify here because someone will definitely be like, no, Alex, you said this wrong technically, but I remember when President Biden said basically. Something along the lines of, we're going to win the voters in Manhattan, and we're also going to win the voters in Scranton. Uh, and I did look, and he did barely win Scranton, so uh, I'm not going to say difference because someone will correct me, but uh, but I think you kind of get the general gist of what I'm saying, right? People in Prineville are very different than the people in Westland, Oregon, where I'm from. And I think part of it is, is cultural values, right? Uh, I mean, one sort of funny thing to me kind of growing up and seeing this divide is like, I feel like in my parents' original suburb, like the signs growing up were basically split like 40, 60, right? It was like a lot of John Kerry signs, but there was a couple George Bush signs mm-hmm. kind of scattered around there, you know, a little bit. Uh, but now it's basically like everybody has some sort of sign in our neighborhood that's like something about Black Lives Matter or like science is real or sort of like things like that. And then kind of more in the traverse rural areas, right? Like Democrats actually used to win about 40, 45% mm-hmm. of the vote in some of these areas. And that's slowly yeah. drifting to become dramatically more towards the GOP. And I personally think it's because of the, of the cultural differences. And those are just playing such a bigger issue now in our society than maybe that they were before. But I'm sort of curious of you, who's a progressive in a rural area, like, you know, but you, you've seemed to be uh, one, I think, at least from what you came off in the article is like, part of it is you're just respectful to people in general, <laughs> uh, which I think is something that's actually missed a lot in politics. And something that I think has probably caused you to be, you know, successful, even though I think your views probably differ heavily than a lot of the constituents, but I'm just curious of like, what do you think of the cultural gap? And then what do you maybe think that are kind of some ways to bring that stuff together? Yeah. Um, so I would say that I, uh, I might come across as respectful, but it's actually, um, it comes from a place that I really like people. <laughs> like, I just love people. Um, and so maybe, maybe it's more like love than respect. And that sounds weird, but like, I can't help but love folks who just disagree with me profoundly. Now, there's some people that I wouldn't turn my back on in the dark, um, you know, (laughs) or in a rural area, I guess, you know, not drive down their road in the dark. Um, But um, I do think that there's, there's a lot to be gained in the world by respecting people who we differ from culturally. Um, And I don't think any of it's linear. Uh, I don't think it's tr- it, ha- it can't be transactional in my view. Um, I don't I don't think you can go into an area and be like I respect you, and then expect to 
be welcomed. Um, that's just like not how it works. So, and that's why I say the non-linearity of it. It's just like, uh, I think that people have to put in the time um, in order to even understand what's happening in a community. Um, but I do think that, I think that the, no offense, Alex, I'm gonna be, uh, no offense, but I do think that cultural, uh, the idea that there's cultural differences that make the places um, uh, that, that foundational, are foundational to the urban rural divide. I actually don't think that that's true except in the context of electoral politics. And the reason I say that is because some rural areas, some extremely rural areas are um, deeply uh, like high numbers, they're very diverse, um, but the electorate, mm -hmm. um, the people who actually have the means and the time, the ability, the legal status to vote um, have, uh, have embraced their own cultural um, you know, norms and distinctions and values. Um, but in our rural areas, we have, uh, so the island, you know, I talked about all these different people on the island, but about half of our island is career farm workers who primarily speak Spanish and aren't able to vote. Um, and they are doing their work to promote their families and get them ahead and get their kids uh, educated and speaking English. Um, and, you know, the whole list of like American dream kind of stuff. And so I feel like there's more cultures in rural areas than sometimes are um, the pictures are drawn of, but electoral politics seems to be more uh, more conservative these days. Well, that's and that's I feel like you had another question in there too. Um, but I do think that um, I do think that the beginning of um, I don't want to have any homogenization. I think that it's really powerful to have different people with different views, even if they're living in different places. I, what I do cons grow concerned about is the segregation of people by their culture and political views. Right. And that's, that's a, a great deal of concern to me, which honestly is part of running, is that I don't want to see Greater Idaho happen. Right. Just straight up, I think that we need everybody in Oregon to be in Oregon and be committed to living here and making this a better place. So, so that's sorry, a, Ben, you were going to say something. No, no, no. Um, it's, I'm, I'm processing what you're saying. And also, so Titus men mentioned the timber industry and the decline of oh, the timber yeah. industry. Um, and so the so it's interesting to hear you kind of push back a little bit on the cultural divide. Um, but certainly there's an economic divide between urban and suburban Oregon and rural Oregon, and particularly in places who've long been dependent on the timber industry and where when that industry was decimated by regulation, Endangered Species Act, uh, you know, um, improvements. Can we in talk about timber industry at some point too? Sorry. No, that's where we are now. It's like, in, okay. you know, te technological <laughs> development, et cetera. For all these reasons, the industry has been, been decimated. Um, and some people like to demonize the spotted owl or, or demonize corporations, but the reality is the jobs are gone. And I would argue that another piece of the reality is those jobs in that industry are not coming back in the near future because of federal political reasons, um, state policy reasons, et cetera. And what I think, I don't think that a single statewide figure of either party has offered a compelling solution for what comes next for those communities. What are we gonna do 30, 40 years later where some of these places still have unemployment rates of 20, 30, upwards of 40% and the state, the federal government has never said, here's what our economic replacement for your lost jobs is. And so I think that's where the resentment, 
Um, mm -hmm. The anger, the frustration comes out. Um, and I think it manifests itself sometimes in what I would describe as racism or homophobia. But I think a lot of times the root of it is economic insecurity that leads to fear. Um, so I guess, you know, you're running for the most powerful position in Oregon where you could really shift the dynamic in some of these communities. What's your answer for rural Oregon and particularly communities who've just been decimated over the last 30, 40 years? What are you going to do for them? So Ben, um, the, I really appreciate your, um, your framing of it. And I want to change a couple of words in there sure. in order to like agree with it, mm -hmm. which is that you said that, um, uh, industries, the timber industry was decimated. I want to say that in my view, rural communities that were dependent upon timber jobs were decimated because the industry itself, it didn't skip a beat. It just transferred over hmm. through technological and creativity. Um, it's, it switched over to private timberland. So um, if you look at the number of board feet that were cut year by year, the changes are dramatic in the percent that comes from state land, federal land, and private land. But the shift, the, um, the overall number of board feet of timber kept going throughout that whole time. But at the same time, as you were alluding to, the technology of it, um, dramatically decreased the number of jobs that were in the woods and in the mills. And honestly, it's, it's awful. And the federal government like, um, did not do what was right. And the state government did not do what was right. But I also want to say that jobs that were gone were very dangerous jobs. Mm. So safety, so technology yielded safety for the people who were on the job. It also meant that every person was producing a lot more. But that still means that timber communities were decimated and continue that legacy. We have that now. And um, whenever I have the opportunity to talk with people at the state level or in our own community doing economic development, I say one thing to them. I'm like, if you just hear one thing, I want you to hear this one thing, which is that when we get out of the pandemic, so we're, we're moving out of it, right? But as we move out of it, we need to remember that in uh, 1990 through 1994, we did not do enough to bring communities, rural communities with us, to hold mm -hmm. them up, to invest in them, to support them, to come out of that. And I feel like so many, you alluded it to it, but so many issues in rural communities and in Oregon in general are related to a lack of an investment in people at the time. And so I think about, um, um, you know, there's folks in the Philomath area that they uh, they had timber and they had um, a, a woods business. You know, they were loggers and um, haulers and um, their family broke apart as a result of no longer in the contracts that they had. Um, mm -hmm. It just literally broke apart and generations of people from there on were scattered to the winds who had been in this community forever. And, and one of the things I feel very strongly is that each community has the right and the duty perhaps even to still exist. And that seems weird, but I, I realize the older I get how important it is to have these communities with unique cultural um, expressions and histories in their place. But so what, what we need to do, honestly, as a state and as the leader, we need to go into these communities and figure out the things that are of value right now that we can support, the things that we need to just honestly be like, that's not coming back. And I think you were right in saying that some of these timber jobs, they're just not going to come back. Mm -hmm. But a lot of communities, so Willamina is a really good example of this. They're Timbertown USA. Like that's what they've called themselves. 
Um, and I want to say it was four years ago, Online Northwest, which is our regional ISP, said, what do you think about us bringing, I think it's like a T1 or a T11 or T4, there's some kind of really high speed, high capacity internet. What do you think about us bringing it to your community? And then for a while, at least, we're going to have low cost internet to you. And they were like, yeah, we will do this. And that's been super helpful to the community as they start to build up a base that's not just reliant upon timber. But the other thing that they really need, this is a result of timber practices over the years. They really need a new water system in order to be able to welcome new people to their community. Um, so there's there's these abilities. They're, they're really interested in, uh, in promoting bicycle camping and bikepacking. That's like, they really want to um, bring people into the community to do outdoor recreation tourism. Like that's a stated thing. They want to have small homes so that people can afford to live there. So small lot sizes, all of the, the uh, land use things that allow people to still afford to be in the space and to capitalize on the things that they have, which is they have clean air, they have clean water, and they have really good internet. Um, so there's these possibilities, but they're still held back. I was going to so, say, what, what, wouldn't it be nice if there was a trail there that you could attract some tourists? <laughs> I'm kidding. Titus, you're up. <laughs> so, so Casey, before we, and we, we want to transition to politics in, in just a second, but just one follow-up to Ben's question. So yeah. you've talked a lot about rural communities and investment in rural communities. I would say, you know, Democrats have at least held the governorship Gosh, for a lot longer than I, I was even born uh, at this point, whenever Governor Atia had left. And clearly, I think the situation has gotten dramatically worse, at least for rural timber communities over the years. Uh, and I don't think that, at least I'm sure timber unity would say Governor Brown has done very little basically to help our timber communities kind of either bring back jobs or make a transition or whatever. Sure. Uh, what are Democrats, what are Oregon Democrats just missing about these communities? Like, mm -hmm. is it a lack of education investment? Is it a lack of job training? Like what's missing in the equation that Democrats just haven't put forward yet? Oh, so you mean to, um, to gain the support of rural communities? Is that what you're? No, I mean, in terms of like investment, basically to help, like your, your kind of take was like revitalize these communities. Like, like what, what, what is the missing piece to sort of like why that hasn't happened yet? I mean, I think honestly, Alex, that it, um, it requires, the going into the community and asking them and then listening really closely. And even if it doesn't match your conception of the world, figuring out how what you heard can happen in a way that still matches, say, Oregon Democratic values. Um, and I think that that goes for urban communities as well as for rural communities, is going and actually listening to them. And if you so, I'm gonna bring in urban Portland at this point, which is if you listen to people about why they are talking about and trying to recall Ted Wheeler, it's because they feel like he is not listening to his community. Hmm. And I mean, the same would go for ODOT and the Rose Quarter project, right? Is that mm -hmm. um, Albina Vision Trust and Harriet Tubman and um, the community that used to exist there is like, you are not listening to us. And they risk disenfranchisement and anger in that community for generations to come. So, so I think that's actually, I'm glad you brought in Portland here because another aspect of the urban-rural divide that I think is um, not spoken about enough is the racial justice component of the urban-rural divide. And yeah. you alluded to the fact that they're actually, there's this myth that rural communities are all white, um, which is certainly not the case. Um, but 
So we are a show of two white males and we try to be introspective about that and what that means for the show. You are a, a straight white male running for governor after the sort of um, racial justice summer of last year. And so I've got two questions on that. First is why you? What's the case for, what, what do you uniquely bring to the table that you know, Tobias Reed and Val Hoyle and Tina Kotek and these sort of Nick Kristoff, you know, these other folks um, don't bring to the table. Um, and then and acknowledging that every every even proposed candidate that I know of um, that's considering it is a white person in Oregon. Right, and right. Then, and then I this, have heard us about Senator Lou Frederick, though, so I'll just put oh, that Oh, interesting. That's, that's, that's breaking news for us that uh, Senator Frederick is, is uh, in the... Um, I just put him in there. So <laughs> I better go check with him now. <laughs> no, no, no. That's good. And then the second piece is I was listening to your interview with Carl Fisher. As a Washington mm. County Democrat myself, I, I try to to be in touch with um, the work, good work Carl is doing. And you said something that I found interesting. You said, um, he asked who, who your base was gonna be. And part of your answer was racial equity groups and queer communities who have important issues that we need to address that aren't being addressed in the legislature or the governor's office. So the second part of the question is acknowledging that you're saying part of your base are these diverse communities um, what are those issues that you feel like the democratically controlled legislature and the Democratic governor have failed to address since the, again, this, this summer where racial justice was elevated front and center in policymaking? Right. So that's a great question. I would say that the probably the, the easiest thing to start with is uh, what the legislature did address. And I would say that the legislature did more on um, uh uh, racial equity and policing than we've seen in quite some time, mm -hmm. attempts at police reform. And I will say that um, I'm, I'm happy to be a friend of Representative Ron Nobles, who was instrumental in that, right? It, like he, he made it bipartisan, mm -hmm. um, a lot of that. And I'm definitely proud that he stepped up in that way. Um, you know, it's, it shows that people can really learn new things and still hold that kernel and perspective and that um, experience that they have. He's always like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not a black woman in Portland, but I hear what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, being, uh, having the opportunity to hold all these different roles in life uh, from the being in the, in the sewer, you know, fixing the, the, uh, the steam pipes and being up on the surface, walking with the privileged college students, um, I hear people and then I do my damnedest to figure out how to take their concerns and find a solution that works um, within the systems that we have. And I, I just take that into everything I do. What I will say is that while some uh, progress was made on policing reform, um, there's so much more that can happen. And I'll point to, um, as an example, the alternatives to police response forces, right? So like the CAHOOTS model or the, um, I think they're calling it Portland Street Response. <clears throat> In our community, it's the CARES Alliance, and um, which is a much more comprehensive approach to it. And basically- for for listeners that oh, yeah. it, for listeners it's when an, an unarmed person who specializes in mental health shows up to certain police calls rather than a police officer right that's what you're referring to yes yes exactly so um, only five million dollars was set up for that project statewide and I will say that the legislature knows that that's not really enough to even get one up and running but it's an attempt to address this situation of reimagining public safety 
as defined by the community. And I think that's a really important part of it is that Portland should have a different response to racial inequity and in policing than Lake County, just by their nature of being different places. Even if they have the same problem, they should have different responses. And I think the legislature providing that, that funding and the opportunity can do that. But there's also more to, um, injustice in the policing system, because if we're just talking about policing, we're not talking about criminal justice reform, right? Um, and criminal justice reform didn't move nearly as far as it should have in this legislative session. And I think that it really, it can move forward in future sessions. Are you, are you talking about non-unanimous juries, I'm guessing, or are there other components as well? That is a great one, yeah, yeah. But there's a, there's a whole myriad of them. I mean, part of it is pulling out things that really don't need to be in Measure 11, mandatory mm -hmm. minimums. Yep. Um, you know, we pulled out juvenile, and then we tried to pull out um, women who... Uh, had um, who have histories of domestic violence and are in the carceral system. So that's, you know, all these different ones, trying to invest in people as they're coming out of the system so that they can be awesome, fully functioning, satisfying, meaningful parts of our society when they come out. Because it is like 98% of people who come into DOC, uh, Department of Corrections come out of DOC. Mm -hmm. Very and we don't, we really don't need them going back in and harming our community in the meantime. So there are many ways that we can reduce the, um, the harms that are done uh, to communities and communities of color and to victims um, by reducing the overall footprint of our criminal justice system while still keeping people safe. And that's like the, the fundamentals of, um, of communities of color challenge to the, the criminal justice system is we can do better for people by reducing how many people are in the system and still keep people safe. Hmm. So, Casey, so we'll another, I guess another way, so sorry, non-unanimous juries are one way to think about how to address it. So that's not just the AG's responsibility is to really take it at the governor, um, the, the executive leadership in the state, like the statewide office holders, the legislature and the AG together, um, and actually consider something along the lines of a truth and reconciliation, where we actually look at because um, you know a lot of the people who were convicted by non unanimous juries are likely they likely did commit the crime. So it would be injustice to like let them go, but it would also be terribly expensive to try to try everybody over again too. So real, real quickly before oh, Alex yeah. goes, um, do you, there's the attorney general Ellen Rosenblum is getting hammered um, from a lot of national groups saying you should apply this Supreme Court decision that uh, nullifies non-unanimous juries for re retroactively for past cases. Do you think she should do that and, and apply that standard retroactively? Um, I think that, uh, I think other people think that she can do that. I think a better solution would actually be to form uh, essentially a truth and reconciliation commission so that we have a system set up to address a lot of other harms that have happened through the criminal justice system and process. Um, and that would be simply one of them is to relook at certain cases, um, but it would also, but it would be a whole of government approach, right? So it wouldn't be the AG um, bowing to pressure from one group. It would be all of us together really looking at what is the right thing going forward for people in our state, both for the people who are incarcerated 
unjustly, and for the people who were convicted by a non-unanimous jury, but likely actually committed crimes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, honestly, I think I see this as a model where we can do things like address um, a history of incarcerating people for drug offenses, um, and then really look at that and what it looks like to have some level of reparations for communities. Um, so for example, right now we have cannabis has been legal now for five years under a regulated system, but people of color still struggle they struggle to get the capital to start up businesses within the cannabis system. Whereas all I had to do was fill out the paperwork, put up a fence and put up cameras and I was in business. I didn't have to worry about the fact that I had a criminal record and I had no access to capital. So I do think that if we, um, if we address non-unanimous juries, we also have the opportunity to address a lot of other issues of injustice in the community. I mean, for that matter, we probably should be thinking as a state about whether, you know, so um, a couple of years ago, there was um, sonar that was uh, used at a Chamawa Indian School. Right. And it found that there were graves, there were likely skeletons under the surface in certain areas. Um, addressing that is something that we need to do. Honestly, I feel like for our collective psyche as a state is to address some of these issues of injustice before they become something that carries with us as um, a scar and a stain on the state. And so that that actually goes back to the timber wars um, and timber industries and, and timber communities being decimated because some of these things we just haven't addressed. Thank you for that answer. Yeah, so so Casey, we're uh, getting to the question that everybody wants to hear, okay? So we have a New York Times columnist with global renown who's probably going <laughs> to enter the race. We have the Speaker of the Oregon House. We have uh, potentially the Secretary of State, potentially the Attorney General, potentially the Treasurer, potentially the Mayor of Portland, and potentially the Chairwoman of the Multnomah County Commissioners. Okay? And the Labor Commissioner. And the labor commissioner also. Oh, and um, uh, SEIU's uh, executive Melissa director. Unger, right? Oh, yeah, and, and Melissa Unger. And maybe yeah, Lou so. Frederick. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and and may, maybe Senator Frederick. So uh, get, give us the political pitch of saying, okay, I'm going up against all of these big guys and big gals who are statewide office, et cetera. What, it, what is your strategy, basically, to, 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 win, to win the primary? And uh, I see it in some way. Maybe, maybe you're going to take the Donald Trump route, right? You're just, you're sort of coming out of nowhere, make a big name for yourself. You know, win, you only have to win like 35% of the primary to be able to pull it out. So uh, give, give us the political case for Casey for governor. Well, I would say, Alex, that um, I, uh, <clears throat> I have never been and I never will be the person who shocks somebody with the statements I make. And um, people are like, well, so I would say that politically connected people are like, well, you just have to shock people and say outrageous things. And I'm like, that's not actually me. Um, And everybody needs to be true to themselves, especially as an elected official and as a person who's campaigning. I feel like the the best thing we can do for people in Oregon is to be true to ourselves. And for me, I mean, like the pitch to the community is you want to have some, do you want to have somebody that'll bring people together who absolutely loves people across the state of Oregon and that you're excited and proud to have as your governor? 
um, because I see the governor position as the person who really is the mourner, the cheerleader, the person who gets excited about every single part of Oregon and is willing to just knuckle down and persist on these like really intractable problems and is willing to address them. So that's that's the like that's how I see my role in the state of Oregon right now is just getting people so damn excited to like take those stickers off of their car that said my governor is an idiot. Great, be like, all right, uh, we're we're past that now. Um, we're in a time when um, it's okay to disagree with one another, right? Like Ben and Alex, presumably you disagree. So far, we haven't really today, um, but like presumably you disagree. And I really want us to get to a spot where it's like, yes, that's the start of finding a solution. Well, we, I, uh, that wasn't I, a very good pitch, but that's me. No, no, no. I think that that was a fine pitch. And I regret that uh, we are at the hour mark in our interview where we could have really dove into the disagreements with Alex and myself <laughs> and you, but Casey, We're this close, <laughs> so close. Like, Oh, we should talk about, uh, let's see, death penalty, involuntary servitude, uh, maybe public options, abortion for sick. sure. Abortion. Um, but yeah, we'll save that for Guns. the pop- when you win the primary, we're having you back and we're going to tackle the hard hitting issues. Uh, <laughs> that but, sounds great. But Casey, thank you again for taking the time. And then the last thing we like to do before we close is, you know, if someone heard this interview and they want to get involved in your campaign or they want to learn more about you, what's the best way for someone to be connected or to learn more? Yeah, so the, the simple repository for most information is kulafororegon.com. And that'll be a place where you can buy campaign merchandise. Um, you can donate. You can tell me how awful I am. Or you can send me an email from there. Um, go there. I'm on Twitter a lot because it's really fun. And people are really nice to me there. <laughs> I've, I've never heard you. anybody say that about Twitter. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right? This is, this is my life is when people consistently underestimate me. And then they're like, that's weird. <laughs> thank you alex you, you heard it from casey to make friends go to twitter very easy place to get along uh, but casey thanks again and for our listeners thanks for listening to another episode uh, don't forget to hit subscribe and to give us a five-star rating and we will see you next week with another episode thanks casey thanks a lot ben thanks alex